Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Dr. Ali Khan, a former Assistant Surgeon General and current Dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Our conversation has been recorded today by Zoom. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast, we accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. Dr. Khan's professional career has focused on health security, global health, and emerging infectious diseases. He was a disease detective at CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and one of the main architects of CDC's Public Health Bioterrorism Preparedness Program. As Dean of the UNMC College of Public Health, his focus is on health system and community-based health transformations. In 2015, he supported response activities for the West Africa Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone as a World Health Organization consultant. Dr. Khan is the author of The Next Pandemic on the Front Lines Against Humankind's Gravest Dangers. Dr. Khan, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure, Stuart. Thanks for the opportunity. Where did this start from? That is such an intriguing bio, and that's only the half of it, if not a quarter of it. So where did getting into medicine start for you? So getting into medicine started really early for me, uh, probably around a love of reading. And uh, when I was 15 or 16, I read a book about Louis Pasteur um, and his fight against infectious diseases and germ theory and vaccines. And I thought, you know what, I want to do this when I grow up one day. So I'm the first person in my family who's ever gone to college. I think I may well be the first person in my, I'm the first person in my family who ever went to high school. And so I really didn't have a lot of of family familial connections to say, Ali, there's lots of options for you to do this. You could be a PhD, you know, microbiologist, et cetera, et cetera. I thought that means I need to be a doctor. And so (laughs) I, that was my passion. I had wonderful support from my parents and family and friends and made it not just through high school, but through college. And then uh, eventually to med school in Brooklyn. I'm from New York City, born and bred in New York. Uh, and then when I was done, I was time to do a residency training. And I decided I want to do internal medicine and pediatrics. And uh, I applied outside the U.S. And my family was uh, very concerned about me because they saw no reason why I needed to leave Brooklyn at all, let alone New York. You know, there's definitely a place out in Staten Island. I could have gotten a residency or Long Island, but they're like, you're going to where? Michigan? Where's that? So I spent four fabulous years in the Midwest uh, in Ann Arbor uh, at the University of Michigan. I did internal medicine and pediatrics there. And I had planned to return to the East Coast to do infectious diseases. Again, Louis Pasteur, my passion about infectious diseases. And I got waylaid by a wonderful mentor. And Bob Gaines said, uh, Ali, we've got this lined up for you, your infectious disease fellowship. But why don't you go down to CDC for two years? I have this training program called EIS. And uh, that's what you should do. And I said, Bob, how do you spell CDC? And he said, do not embarrass me, Ali, when you get down there. So EIS is the Epidemic Intelligence Service. It's a disease detective program. 
It's a premier training program in the United States for people who want to be epidemiologists. And it's all about field epidemiology. So my two years at what I thought was going to be two years in Atlanta, learning how to be an excellent epidemiologist turned into a career at CDC. And I never looked back. I fell in love with public health. I fell in love with the mission of, you know, the core social justice mission of public health. I fell in love with the people of public health. And I fell in love with the agency. It's always nice to be someplace where everybody is smarter than you are. It really keeps you on your toes. And so I spent 20 odd years chasing infectious diseases all over the world before I had the pleasure of coming here as dean. So there you are reading about Pasteur and it sparked something in you. I don't know if this is uncommon. I, I don't know what the statistic would be, but um, I think it's, you know, so it, it's a rare child that gets inspired early and then persists with that passion for such a long period of time into a long career. And, and I'm, I'm curious if there was anything in your family context that was unusual about your interest in medicine, or if you were surrounded by people interested in public health and, and medicine writ large. Uh, none, uh, none whatsoever, to be honest with you. My family, as I said, my father was a, uh, started his life as a peasant farmer in Kashmir and beautiful foothills of the M Himalayan mountains and lovely valley there and made his way down to Bombay before he came to the U.S. to start his living. And the story of the American dream eventually made it here in the United States. But he had a passion for education. He realized it was what he didn't have and he wanted to assure all of his kids got an education. So that really helped me. Also, I had, you know, another early mentor, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Langlands, who got me into reading and got me into reading the classics. Uh, and then th that was then a lifelong love for reading and a li lifelong love for discovery and, and adventure. You know, books are wonderful. You can have a billion adventures, millions of adventures in a book that you can't have in real life. And, and that's what's it. So between my, between my parents, and this wonderful mentor that sparked my passion for learning and uh, my passion to eventually be a clinician. detective, a compelling, intriguing phrase. The work is really important, but also I would imagine feeding into a spirit of curiosity you were just describing about yourself. So when you first land at CDC, what was it you thought you were going to be doing? And then how did it um, unfold as a starting point for infectious disease study? So when I joined CDC, um, the program is billed as a field epidemiology program, a disease detective program. So I assumed that uh, when I would arrive, I would get the opportunity to do one or two outbreak investigations out in the field or at CDC, and that people would give me the appropriate training to understand how to do that. What I was surprised by and still in awe of is the amount of support the agency provides these young individuals who show up and say they want to become disease detectives. 
uh, and to really help train them to understand how do you look at a problem, understand why you're seeing disease, and most importantly for the agencies, how do you link that to prevention, right? Everything we do, yes, it's it's a wonderful mystery to figure out. Yes, it's it's due to microbe X that's, you know, it's like a game of clue, right? It's due to microbe X that's spread in the boardroom using a respiratory route, right? That, that's, that's what we do. Um, and uh, so, but I was surprised by how much support they got. And uh, they would send these young officers out in the world and say, go investigate this outbreak. And you think, wait, that makes no sense. Why would you send the most junior person you have who just showed up, you know, out of their residency, out of their PhD program and send them off to investigate an outbreak. And the reason that model work is what I tell and what I told other junior officers in the future is, well, it's because you're surrounded by thousands of people who've done it before who are backing you up. And so you never felt alone. You felt like you had this wealth of knowledge <laughs> available to you to do it and get it right. And that's what made for a great experience at CDC. What was your first experience that you remember when um, you were told, hey, Dr. Khan, off you go uh, to a strange place. And we want you to work in a very, very dangerous environment because <laughs> you're dealing with infectious diseases. So <laughs> off you go and solve this challenge. And so I'm going to give you two because they were back to back. So the first one was, was internal at the agency. There was a um, paper published that suggested that chronic fatigue syndrome was due to a retrovirus like HIV. And that made no logical sense. So my first investigation was to identify individuals who had chronic fatigue syndromes, those who did not, interview them, test their blood, and prove that that finding that was published in the literature was wrong. So that was my first investigation, but that took a couple of months to do. And in the middle of that, my first outbreak investigation outside the agency was a cruise ship outbreak in Hawaii. Now, what do I know about cruise ships? What do I know about, it was a diarrheal illness, vomiting illness, nothing. But again, you have the whole agency behind you to support you. And so I found myself on a plane with a ticket to Hawaii with no idea what I was supposed to do, right? I was about a month or two into or so into the, uh, my training. And so I had a conversation. In those days, they had phones on the back of planes. And so in the, in the plane, I'm having this conversation about diarrhea and vomiting and what I'm, supposed to, what I'm supposed to do a questionnaire and what is supposed to be on the questionnaire, right? So all these things, you, you do a month of uh, sort of didactics, but that's very different from out in the field to say, okay, you got to put a questionnaire together. You got to analyze the questionnaire. And the fun part of that story is the plane lands in Hawaii and the pilot asks everybody to stay on the plane until Dr. Khan can deboard because they've been holding the ship for me. So there's somebody waiting for me at the airport to rush me to the port so I can get on the ship and do my investigation. And then I look around. And so I'm sitting there. So they, Dr. Khan, we'd like you to go to the front. And I look around and like everybody's looking at me and I'm like, how did they know I'm Dr. Khan? And then I go, oh my gosh, I just ruined these people's vacation with an hour long conversation about diarrhea. <laughs> so I go on the ship and then I should mention that my dad, who's, uh, as I said, spent his time on, on ships uh, starting at 14 and how he got to the United States, right? So ships inside and out, a great salesman. I get sick on boats. Um, and so I show up on the boat, on the ship, uh, go up and, you know, everybody's ready for this 
expert from CDC. I'm like, oh my gosh, don't tell these people that have only been there about six to eight weeks. So they're all ready for the expert from CDC to tell them what to do. <laughs> well, the expert from CDC would potentially cobble together what to do, except that he's puking away. So <laughs> I was miserable. I was So I was like laying on the couch, groaning, moaning, saying, okay, this is what we need to do. Fortunately, I had a medical, wonderful medical student with me. And I was like, okay, so this is how we're going to develop the questionnaire. This is the questions we're going to ask. These are the people we're going to interview. And I was so fortunate, thank gosh, that there was a nurse who, in front of all of these people, pulled down my pants and gave me a shot of a drug to make me stop puking. And I, I was too sick to be embarrassed, but she was brilliant because within 20 minutes, I was fine and went on with my investigation. So there you go. That was my first investigation of, of uh, a gastrointestinal illness in a cruise ship. And it turned out to be fortuitous because that was when we were developing the science of Norwalk viruses. And so that was one of the first initial uh, descriptions of uh, Norwalk virus as a specific agent of the diarrheal illness. And in the end, it was due to, drum roll, the ice machine. Yeah, what was happening was, and so this was, again, fortunately, uh, how disease detectives work. I had asked about how much ice people drank. Uh, in their drinks. The more ice you had in your drink, the more likely you were to get sick. And so I went off to go look at this ice maker. And what it was, was this uh, a large ice maker with a scooper and people would take their hands in the scooper and scoop out the ice. And now if you're sick, you just transferred poop from your hand to the scooper to the ice and then on the scooper. Uh, and so the more ice you had, the more it was contaminated. And fortunately, since we're in the prevention business, it was a simple solution. They moved to an ice maker with the ice dumped from the top into a bucket. So you never touch the ice in any way, shape or form. Their outbreak went away. CDC to the rescue. Life goes on. talk about the pandemic in a minute and some of the paranoia and conspiracy theories around the genesis of COVID-19. Um, ever since humans have been using chemicals of some sort, whether plant-based or manufactured as weapons, I, I guess we've been concerned about the idea of bioterrorism. So, so what was that aspect of the work you were doing? 
Uh, so bi bioterrorism dates back thousands of years. We have a phrase in English called poisoning the well. Uh, and that comes from the sense of that if you're a retreating army, you throw dead animals and other things into a well so that the occupying forces don't have water sources. Uh, and there's lots of reports of people trying to hurl dead bodies at encampments, et cetera, to try to get people. They didn't understand germ theory, but they understood enough to say, hmm, dead, maybe I can make you dead with another dead person, right? Which is close to germ theory, if you think about it, right? It's the rats and the rodents, but that's besides the point. Um, actually, the um, Epidemic Intelligence Service was originally started by a polyglot, a luminary in our field, uh, because of the Korean War and the concern about the use of biologic weapons. You know, chemical weapons, well known during World War One. During World War II, lots of development of biologic weapons occurred, including the U.S. that started an offensive biologic weapons program. So the concern during the Korean War was that biologic weapons would be used against uh, American forces and potentially on the American homeland. So that's actually the genesis of EIS. But the story of bio bioterrorism defense in the United States goes back to a book. It goes back to President Clinton, the COBRA event. I won't say it's all a book because President Clinton also obviously had the appropriate uh, access to intelligence that suggested that the then Soviets... Uh, decided to treat the Biologic Weapons Convention Treaty like we treat our mortgage statements, right? All that, you know, all that fine print that we never see. So they never read the fine print in the Biologic Weapons Convention Treaty that says, you will not make anthrax and smallpox by the tons loaded into ICBMs and pointed at your friends. Somehow they missed that in the whole Biologic Weapons Convention. Um, and they had a massive bioweapons program called Biopeprot in the former uh, USSR. And so uh, President Clinton said, you know, we've dismantled our bioweapons uh, offensive program, but we need to have a biodefense program in the United States. I had the opportunity to participate in thinking through what that looked like in the US and help uh, start found that in the US in 1999. Uh, and that was the genesis of things we hear about now called the strategic national stockpile, right? That started then, uh, has did a number of other uh, efforts. And we were fortunate because in 2001, obviously everybody remembers the horrific events of 9-11, uh, but those of us in the public health world also remember that anthrax letters were mailed out very shortly after that, that were very disruptive nationally uh, until we figured out what had happened, which was, you know, a disgruntled lab worker um, who decided to mail these letters out, probably because he was trying to get the U.S. more prepared, but un unable to say that because he eventually obviously committed suicide. Uh, so that's, that hold, held us in good stead, having done that work. And then that public health preparedness work over the decades, I would say, uh, even though we had a failed response to COVID-19, put us in a better place than we would have been if we didn't have all that work over the last few decades. You just used the phrase, our failed response to COVID-19. And so why don't we talk a little bit then about the current pandemic that hopefully here in America, we're in the twilight of, maybe, hopefully, we'll see. Um, the rest of the world certainly is not. What has surprised you about this current COVID-19 pandemic? If I can, Stuart, let me bridge from that in terms of some of the legacies of the program, because one of those legacies is right here in Omaha, which is that with those initial preparedness dollars, the University of Nebraska Medical Center decided to set up its biocontainment unit, which then they maintained which eventually we saw Ebola patients, saw COVID patients, and now uh, Omaha, Nebraska is the national center 
for biosecurity. We have the National Isolation Center, the National Quarantine Center, the you know Emerging uh, Pathogens uh, Training Center. So all of that can be traced back to what happened back in 2001 and the initial response to um, anthrax in the U.S. and having a good preparedness program. So the COVID response, uh, it, without a doubt, it was a failed response in the United States. You can't look at 750,000 dead Americans and not say that there was a failed response, especially since there are wonderful models of countries that responded dramatically better than us, right? So if you think of China, Thailand, Vietnam, Singapore, et cetera, et cetera, not that they didn't subsequently have outbreaks, especially during this current Delta variant strain, but dramatically lower deaths. And actually, if even, even if you look north of us, our Canadian neighbors, who I'm sure are not as pleased with their response as uh, they would want to be, uh, had dramatically lower deaths per capita than we did in the United States. And there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, I have framed it as a lack of imagination that when the initial cases were identified, uh, the U.S. did not recognize this as a SARS. There was a, a prior SARS outbreak that was well-managed globally and disappeared, right? Uh, the U.S. did not recognize it as SARS. They recognized it as influenza. They pulled out the influenza playbook. And uh, that was the wrong playbook, essentially, right? It should, the influenza playbook is all that early talk you heard of, you know, flatten the curve, you know, all of that was, that's all influenza playbook uh, stuff. And so there was not, not enough focus on testing, right? We did not do what South Korea did, which was ramp up hundreds of millions of tests. We have and had the ability to do that then if that was what we had prioritized the way South Korea did. We did not focus on contact tracing, on quarantining people, isolating outside the home, all the things that we knew that would work. Uh, we didn't use any of those measures. And so the outbreak, to be very honest with you, got away from us and we've never been able to get ahead of it. Uh, and that's been disappointing because currently, in addition to the traditional public health tools, we have a, an amazing tool. It's called vaccine, which is extremely effective, right? Uh, and uh, we still, despite having a very, it's, it's safe, it's effective, it's free. It's available on any, every street corner, from what I can tell, if you find a CVS or Wal Walgreens or whatever, we still have 66 million people who have not been vaccinated in the United States. Uh, and that's why we continue to have, you know, I think it's currently 1,500 deaths a day in the U.S. So fortunately, not over 2,000, which is what we were seeing at the top of the Delta wave. But uh, from a public health standpoint, that's 1,500 too many, as far as I'm concerned. What surprised you and what can we learn? So we're always at the risk of the next pandemic. We know we have lots of historical data, for example, that we will get a new influenza strain that will be very severe to which nobody has, has any prior immunity, uh, like we saw in 1918, hopefully not as deadly, but we know we're at risk for that. And we're, we know we're at risk for additional SARS viruses or related viruses. These occur in nature. And occasionally they infect somebody and they win the microbe lottery and are able to, you know, human infects additional humans, right? That's the microbe lottery, right? Which is you find a new host to be in besides the bats you usually hang out, um, hang out in. So, uh, and then there's other examples, you know, you, if you think about here in the US, we were talking about, if we were having this conversation a couple of years ago, we'd be talking about Zika, right? And what was all, what was all going on in Zika, uh, so, uh, correct. So the, these will be always at risk of these diseases. I think what surprised me to some extent was the politicization of this response. The science was simple, straightforward, right? Infectious disease, 
usually spread uh, spread person to person, usually by large particle droplets when you're talking, coughing, sneezing with somebody, sometimes with the little smaller aerosols, you know, a little farther away. This is how you protect people. These are the public health measures to keep them safe, right? What China did, right? So that they saw zero cases. Uh, so the science was straightforward. What surprised me was the politicization of the response and that the moment the response got out of control, it needed to be characterized as, oh, 99% of people survive. Why are you worried about this? And it goes on and on. Herd immunity, right? Uh, we just get everybody infected. This is nothing you need to worry about, right? Uh, and I'm thinking, wow, I'm glad during the plague, uh, you know, black death of the mid 13th, uh, 14th century, nobody said, you know what, let's all go get infected, herd immunity, right? Uh, there's there's actually a term in the English language, run from it like the plague. There's a reason we have this term in the English language. There's a reason when people sneeze, we say bless you because we think that because we're hoping that they don't have plague and aren't about to die. And they didn't just infect us. So bring God's divine intervention on this person. Right. So it's like, like I was dumbfounded that somebody... Uh, and actually, our national position was herd immunity. Let's get everybody infected. Uh, so that surprised me. And then obviously, then uh, everything since then to prevent accountability for what was clearly a national political disaster, probably more than a national public health uh, disaster. So I'm hoping for the next pandemic, we pull out the right playbook and we don't. And it's not so easy as we're trying now. You know, it's the China virus. Let's blame China for what happened. Right. Let's. Hopefully it's not a it's not politicized and people remember at the end of the day, our goal is to make sure that our neighbors are healthy and safe. So hopefully that common humanity component will play a bigger role in the future than it did during this pandemic. I know you feel it in the nighttime and you've given all your days while they were waiting on the right time. Are you worried and maybe even a little upset about what would appear to be a public loss of trust in institutions like the CDC? I'm extremely worried about the lost in trust uh, in institutions and in, uh, in public health in general. Uh, this may be a, a Pyrrhic victory uh, about uh, dismissing this outbreak because, you know, where, where does it stop? If this vaccine is useless, you can't trust the CDC, what CDC says. Some, some have proposed, well, why do we have vaccine mandates at all? Well, then if you don't need vaccine mandates, why do we tell people, why do people need to wear car seats? Why do people not need to smoke in restaurants? I mean, why do you need public health at all, right? Just, you know, so this could prove very, uh, yeah, this basically undermines public health and this scientific undermining of public health could have longer term, more dire consequences than the tragic deaths that we've seen during these short two year periods. And uh, it is time for public health to think about how do they rebuild trust 
in what they do and what they say? And what is their relationship with political leadership to help rebuild that trust? Uh, As public health practitioners, we never see ourselves as partisan. I mean, it's, you know, we're trying to save every person's life. No public health practitioner has ever said, let me see, is this the one I want to save? No, that's just not how it works in our business, right? Each and every life. And we realize, you know, you have to be careful with the strategies that you pick to try to save lives so that, you know, so that they're reasonable. Uh, And we realize that public health policy is always a function of politics, right? So public health policy is politics plus science gives you policy. But how do you help working with leadership to say that there needs to be a balance of politics and science, and it can't just be pure politics. And for my public health practitioners to realize it can't be pure science, right? It's got to be that blend. Because at the end of the day, and this is why I have given politicians a pass for a lot of the activities that occurred, because they are responsible to their constituents, right? I'm not. Uh, as a you know, as a dean, I'm not. But as if I was a public health practitioner locally or in the state, I'm not responsible to constituents. It's the politicians that are responsible. So they need to do the right thing by their constituents, which means more work on public health people to talk to the people in their communities to help them understand what they what they do and what they are. Um, I think the mistake during this pandemic, one of the many many mistakes during this pandemic, is. In many cases, the first time somebody learned they had a public health officer was when somebody told them you couldn't go to a restaurant, you couldn't wear a mask. And they're like, who is this person? <laughs> I, somebody has this authority? I didn't know that. And I think if they had, if public health had been more visible all this time, you know, we like to talk about public health is invisible when everything's going right. But I think it's, we need to make public health visible when everything's going right so that when this person steps up in front of you and says, hi, I'm sorry, you know, we're going to be closing sites of less than more than 100 people, you go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's Johnny, it's Susie, we know who they are. They've always been taking care of me since the day I was born. uh, And they're going to do the right thing by me now, right? Uh, And I think that's what we need. We need to rebuild that trust in public health. You mentioned UNMC earlier, and it's national, if not international profile. And you referenced the Ebola incident. Well, there's been several Ebola incidents, but certainly in a few years ago here, uh, UNMC was certainly a, a central focus point for that. My recollection of the community response to that was um, obviously that little hint of fear that you know, what happens in our community with known Ebola being contained somewhere, which I think is only a natural response. But broadly, this strong pride, I think, and support in a public health institution for managing what was a really dire situation so well, especially under the public glare. I mentioned that just because that seems to be a case on an international visible scale happening right here. At the same time as just a few years later, we're dealing with something that's much more impactful at a community level that is not being treated the same way. I'm just wondering if if you're seeing any lessons for the future of public health out of the successes of before compared to this most recent um, you know challenge. So uh, the Ebola incident is a great example of where the there was complete political support for bringing patients infected with Ebola, despite some minor community concern, uh, from West Africa to 
Omaha and it was wonderful. I mean, the governor was amazing. The Department of Health and Human Services was amazing. The Department of Douglas County Health Department, the local law enforcement that helped us move. I mean, everybody said, you know what? Our primary responsibility is to help save these rescued Americans from West Africa and do the best we can for them. And you're right. It was that alignment was wonderful to see. And that's what we need for the next pandemic. We need that alignment despite, you know, what your religious affiliation may be, what your political affiliation may be, what your age may be, what part of the country, all the different ways we try to split people instead of bring them together as a common humanity. When you have that orientation, uh, good things happen. And now it's a sense of pride for this community. And we saw that at the beginning of the pandemic before it became an issue in our communities, because we had to bring back rescued American. Well, first we brought back people from the Grace Princess, and then we brought back rescued Americans from Wuhan. And whereas many communities said, "Not, uh, you know, not in my backyard, not be. You can't bring these people into, you know, my city, my state, whatever." That was not true of all Nebraskans, right? Not true of people in Omaha. They're like, "Oh, UNMC, they know what they're doing. We're fine. We're proud of the fact." that we are a place where we know how to do this safely and we are a national resource, right? And that worked perfectly. Again, wonderful support from the political leadership uh, in this state, the public health leadership, nonprofits, everybody, just the whole community came together, right? And that's what we need to happen in the next pandemic. And that's gonna require a lot of trust building with the community, again, over the next few years. That ceiling that you'll never I wanted to ask about you and your colleagues because you've taken a beating over the last 18 months, not just because of having to deal with a global pandemic, but because in many ways your task has become quite thankless and misunderstood. And you're working in an environment too where you have clinical staff working on front lines whose compassion is really being drained and exhausted. And I want to check in with you for a, a sense of how are you and how are your public health colleagues coping? So my main concern is for my clinical colleagues uh, who have been working nonstop almost since last March, right here in our communities. And, you know, clearly heroes in this response who stood up and stepped up to make sure that they could do everything they could to make sure that Nebraskans were safe. And we're na nationwide, not just here uh, in Nebraska. And then how drained they feel now when they know the people who are walking into the ER are people who aren't vaccinated, right, by choice. 
right? And what that means to them that they're still working so hard because people have decided they don't want to get vaccinated, right? This is not the early part of the outbreak. This is now. Uh, and we know over 95% of people coming into hospitals are unvaccinated. So I feel for my clinical colleagues and, and many of whom nationally have decided enough is enough. And, you know, this is why we're having staff shortages. But the main reason for the staff shortages is there's too many patients. All right. And even though they're not all COVID, there's too many patients in our communities. I just saw a scroll as we were talking across my screen that said, you know, the, no, no additional beds in the hospital. We have 10 people waiting in the ER. We have six people waiting here. We have this many admits. Please discharge people as fast as you can because we got people lined up in the halls. And this is scrolling across my screen uh, while I'm uh, talking to you. Now, uh, there's a different set of pressures on the pub, my public health colleagues. And the vitriol against my public health colleagues has been very disturbing for me to see. These are people who've dedicated their life to public service. This is, they, they made a choice, often a significant financial choice to say, you know what, I'd rather be in public service to provide good advice, help people be healthier, create healthier communities. And uh, what we, we hear even in, the, in our city of, fair city of Omaha, we saw death threats against the former um, health commissioner, um, and this is true across the U.S. We've seen death threats and other horrible events that uh, public health people have been quitting. Um, and many more will, will retire and quit at, as soon as they can because of how they have been treated uh, by their communities and by their political leadership. So that said, you know, I, I walk around with rose-colored glasses. I think the future will be a better time than ever or the current to be in public health because at least people know what public health is. It's a time to rebuild our systems. We need better data systems. We know we need that, right? We need better, uh, clearly the data systems is one always at the top of my mind. We need more people staffing public health departments so they're not overwhelmed for the smallest little emergency. I think it's a wonderful time to be in public health and to rethink public health where we can no longer be happy by saying, oh, we're invisible because everything's going right to, we need to be visible for people every day so they understand how their lives are impacted by public health. The moment they're born and somebody, you know, decides to put some goop in their eye to prevent the, an eye infection, the moment they get it, their little hepatitis shot before they leave the hospital to prevent cancer, right? It's like, hello, the moment you're born, public health is in action to help protect you.
why Omaha? What is it about um, this boy from Brooklyn that decided that Omaha is the place to ply your trade, to be this public health professional, this public health leader? In that spirit of adventure, what's your role and, and, and what feels adventurous about that for you? So I would counter why Omaha with why not Omaha. <laughs> <laughs> Said like a man has claimed Omaha is home. Who says to me, why Omaha <laughs> and why Nebraska? Like, why not? So um, so on a couple of different levels. So from an intellectual level, I work in a dynamic academic institution with excellent leadership. And um, my passion is about community health and this in Nebraska is someplace where you can braid together the academia with the local, local and state public health nonprofits and say, what are the interventions we need to put in place to make Nebraska the healthiest state in the union? And I have said that we can establish models in Nebraska for the rest of the U.S. We don't need to go look at the rest of the U.S. to do stuff. I mean, there's two million people in Nebraska. If we can't come to a, come up collectively with a way to be healthier, how do we expect places like Texas and New York and California to figure it out, right? So that's intellectually very um, compelling to me because this is a problem across the U.S. We spend more on healthcare than any country in the world, and we have the worst healthcare measures that combination is no good, right? And the only way to fix that combination is to bring public health into the conversation. And so that is intellectually challenging to me every day on how we do that. How do we train our students to be better public health practitioners? So that's from the intellectual standpoint. I can't think of a better place in America to be a public health practitioner. And if you're into academics, given the life of, life of the community here uh, on the campus that I work on um, and the ability to work across the community. I just had conversations yesterday with Creighton University on projects we're going to do together, right? Not, not, com not competitive. It's cooperative and collaborative, recognizing that we will all fight over our students and patients and stuff like that. That's good, healthy competition, but that's the good stuff, right? Um, the other thing is the community itself. Most people, when I tell them that uh, how diverse uh, Omaha is, 25% of underrepresented minorities, they go, what, Omaha? I go, yes, this is an amazing, diverse, rich community. Do you know per capita, we take more people, uh, refugees than any other state in the union. I recognize we're only 2 million people. So I'm careful about that, right? But per capita, we do a really good job because it's a welcoming community. You know, I walk out into my communities, you know, I see, you know, the Somalis, the Sudanese, et cetera. You know, I could go down a long list of all of the ethnic communities that live here uh, in our state and here in the city. And uh, the city's safe. It's good standard of living, easy to get around, great foodie town for somebody like me who likes to be adventurous about new things I eat, evolving music scene. It's a really good place to call home, Stuart. There have clearly been some really intriguing passages in your life and a huge amount of um, excitement, drama, um, learning. And here we are now, and you're looking at this potential of making change in, in this state. And I'm wondering what it is that you've learned about yourself and how you look back and feel you've changed over your career. It's interesting. I would say I thought I was... I knew more when I was 20 than I know now. The, the older I get, the less I know and the less sure I am about things. And I think that's a really good thing. I have learned work living in a state very different from where I grew up in New York about people have different views and beliefs and how do you 
how do you respect them for that? And how do you, how are you inclusive in your thinking about them? Which is why I'm part of actually Tri-Faith, which is a bold experiment here in Omaha to take a church or a temple and a mosque and put it together in one place. You know, again, another reflection of, of the diversity and the openness of this city. So I've learned that about myself. Uh, and so uh, uh, I am a lot open to new ideas, new people, new ways of thinking about things. And I think I, than I was when I was 20, I was brilliant when I was 20, not so brilliant when I'm at now though. Just thinking about Nebraska still a, a, a little bit further. Is there something that, um, that is a challenge or worry uh, in the public health sphere that you're really focused on, but you're excited because you think this is a goal you can achieve. You can make a public health impact in some way on something. Oh, absolutely. So uh, working with the, the health systems, the accountable care organizations, the key medical societies and local and state public health departments and insurers, we have come up with 11 metrics that we can all measure collectively in all of these systems to get people healthier. And so what I'm excited about is moving this Align effort or a Nebraskans for Better Health effort forward so that across the state, everybody is looking at improving these 11 metrics. And we believe that, we, and there, there are metrics around childcare, depression, um, alcohol uh, uh, screening, um, vaccinations, et cetera, uh, cancer screening. If we are looking at these 11 metrics and every health system is improving, improving those metrics in their populations that we will statewide be markedly healthier and increase our rankings in the state. For healthiness. So I'm excited about doing that. It has been tried at successfully at local levels individually. So, you know, San, I can give you a great example. San Diego decided to tackle heart disease across their system. They markedly decreased heart attacks across uh, their system. But uh, to try to do it statewide where every uh, part of the health system is looking at the exact same thing to improve it, that's what excites me now about what the next challenge is working with, our, with all of our partners and helping support them in that effort. I think there have been many reasons for us to have a sense in the last two years of, um, you know, loss of faith, moments of doubt, uh, a pessimism about the human species uh, and our inclinations, some despair, all those sort of negative impacts from the pandemic. How have you maintained a sort of a sense of self-care and a sense of hope for the future? I think what I've learned over the years is if you strip away your own biases, people are the same, right? When I talk to it, no matter what label I want to put on people when we have a one-to-one -one conversation, what is about, yeah, I got parents I need to take care of what's going on with my kid, you know, uh, what I'm, what, what we're doing on family night, what, what games we're watching, what things we're doing together. And that's true globally, right? I've, I've seen the world. And when you just, if you're willing to strip away your own biases first, so I'm, so I'm not going to point to somebody else. I'm going to point to myself. If you're willing to strip away your own biases and just have a conversation with somebody, you realize you're just the same. You have the same loves and the same passions, the same things that annoy you. Uh, there's so much more that binds us together as individuals than separates us. My guest today has been Dr. Ali Khan a former Assistant Surgeon General and current Dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Dr. Khan, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it was a complete pleasure. Thank you very much, Stuart. Cheers. I know we've all had 
beginnings of a new job uh, that maybe didn't go as auspiciously as we wanted, but many of us have not had our trousers pulled down and a <laughs> shot in our butt. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I just want to leave listeners with that visual just for a second. No offense, time to come. Um, yeah. <laughs> Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast, we accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.